Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. We have an amazing one for once. Actually, that's not true. Uh, We've had some amazingly bad ones uh, in the past. And, you know, now that I think about it, quite recently, actually. Uh, But this one, really great. Representative Jamie Raskin uh, joined me a few days ago, the third-term Democrat from Maryland, uh, led the nine-member team of the uh, House impeachment managers, that, of course, is the second uh, impeachment, the one uh, after the January 6th insurrection. Uh, We spoke about all that and his very personal journey following the the tragic death of his son, Tommy, a brilliant kid, a Harvard Law School graduate, took his life after a a long struggle uh, with depression. And that was was just six days before the storming of the Capitol. And uh, Jamie wrote an extraordinary memoir about this, uh, this period from Tommy's death through uh, the impeachment trial. Um, it wrote it during a lot of sleepless nights. The book is Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of Democracy. Uh, and MSNBC is premiering uh, the documentary uh, uh, about uh, Jamie uh, this Sunday, uh, the day that uh, this podcast actually drops. We talk about the book and, and uh, the doc. Uh, and then about uh, the work of the House January 6th Select Committee, of which uh, Jamie is a member, and um, uh, we talk about where that, that's going, where it seems to be headed. I, I'm um, going to go right to our conversation, which begins with a reference to our mutual friend, Dar Williams, uh, whom we both love uh, as a friend and as uh, an artist. She's a brilliant singer-songwriter, and we mention in it Cry, 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 which is a, a trio that Dar sometimes uh, plays in, um, and uh, it, I, I looked up Cry, Cry, Cry uh, just for the hell of it in, in uh, Google, and it referred to it as uh, Cry, Cry, Cry as a folk supergroup, and I didn't know there were, there were folk supergroups, you know, since, I don't know, the Kingston Trio or Peter, Paul, and Mary. I don't know how many of my listeners uh, remember those. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary had that big hit, Puff the Magic Dragon, Lives by the Sea. And I remember uh, they were pretty uh, lefty, pretty liberal. Uh, Dar is, too, to tell you the truth. And uh, some of the right-wing people uh, then uh, accused them of, of Puff the Magic Dragon being about drugs. And that C, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, lives lives by the sea. Uh, the, the sea was uh, cocaine. Um, and now, now the right is saying that it was actually uh, critical race theory. 
which which is odd because Peter Paul and Mary predated, uh, but still they go with it. They go with it because that's that's the right. Okay, um, this is uh, this is as I say an amazing one for a change. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We have a friend in common, Dar Williams. Oh, Dar Williams, of course. Yeah, yeah. D- D- Dar talks to me all the time about you, so yeah. We were both at the Cry, Cry, Cry concert a few, I don't know, a couple years ago, I guess. That's right, and uh, your fellow Minnesotan, uh, Norm Ornstein. Yes, that's right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, we love... We love uh, Dar. We love Cry, 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 and um, yeah, I read I read uh, the book, terrific book, Unthinkable, uh, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy, and um, it covers that period uh, between when Tom when you lost Tommy and the impeachment and the trial and the trial, yeah, and I just um, this I don't know what to say about Tommy. I don't know. Anyone does know what to say to a parent. All I can say is your portrait of him is not just loving, but what an amazing guy Tommy was. And I, you know, any parent losing a kid, I think it's probably the worst thing can happen to you. And it happened to you. And then that was just a few days before January 6th. And then let me ask you this. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, it sounds like she's very intuitive. Did she want you to lead the impeachment? Did she think that would be good for you? And did she think because of that, you'd be amazingly effective? I mean, you you really would have to ask her. I don't mean to deflect, but I, I think that her reasoning was, of course, I am the only professor of constitutional law uh, in the Congress, which is not exactly true because Eleanor Holmes Norton is also a professor of constitutional law, but she's a non-voting delegate um, and she hasn't been teaching that for a long time. But um, I, so I think part of it was just a, a question of subject matter expertise, but also, you know, she had asked me to 
uh, get ready for the Republican onslaught against the Electoral College votes. And so I was prepared to answer all the objections coming in. And so I had mastered the floor routine and all the parliamentary questions that would come up. And then, of course, I was there on January 6th. So I think she thought that I was both professionally and existentially uh, aligned with the duty. I think her question was, was I going to be emotionally prepared for it? And um, felt me out about that. She wanted me to talk to Sarah. She wanted me to talk to our daughters, Hannah and Tabitha. But as I record in the book, I think she threw me a lifeline because I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't know whether I would do anything again of meaning or substance in my career. I was such a wreck and, and so drowning in grief and sorrow, you know, and at that point, I didn't know whether I would come out of it. And she was basically saying to me, we need you and we need you to organize this team and we need you to develop our strategy, assemble the facts, assemble, you know, these mountains of uh, videos and, you know, cell phone pictures and everything and come and do it. And she knew uh, how passionate I was about holding Trump accountable for what had taken place. Well, it is true. As a constitutional lawyer, uh, you're in, in that way the right right guy to do it. But I'll take it both ways. I think that uh, I, I do think there's something about her that was pretty special and that I think she intuited that this would not just be good for you, but but that would, would work for for the team that you managed. And I thought you guys did a beautiful job. I thought you were magnificent in that. I, I thought the whole team was knit together beautifully. You, you write about that in the book. Um, how many? Seven of you? There were nine of us total. And I had insisted on a on a bigger team than what they'd had before because I wanted the full breadth of the caucus and the diversity of the country to come through. And, um, you know, there had been, you know, reports of tension and conflict between Adam Schiff, who was the, the very able impeachment manager, and Chairman Nadler of the Judiciary Committee. Sure. And, of course, that was the, the first impeachment team in history that was not run by the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. So there was some built-in tension there. And, and and I didn't want any of that. I wanted a team of people that could work together. I didn't want a collection of disparate speeches. I wanted one story told from beginning to end so that we would literally pass the baton to the next person. You had to organize like a case, basically. Exactly. Like prosecutors and- would... You know, and I think every and a lot of the senators were expecting, you know, lectures from me as a constitutional law professor about the Federalist Papers and, you know, a lot of stuff that would make them go to sleep. And I basically, you know, made the decision, told the team, we're going to make legal arguments, but really only to answer uh, serious issues that are raised by the other side. If they answer it, we'll blow them away. But we're not going to put that front and, you know, forward, we're going to start with the story of what happened. Because even though all of us were there that day, Al, none of us really had a sense of what was taking place. Nobody had the remotest idea about the magnitude and the bloodiness of the violence taking place outside or the violence it took to get into the building, much less what was taking place on what I call the coup side of it, the effort by Trump and his entourage to coerce Mike Pence into uh, reducing Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College from 306 to below 270 so they could kick the whole thing into the House of Representatives under the 12th Amendment 
for a so-called contingent election. And so nobody really had any idea. They they thought maybe they knew because they were there, but they had a sense of neither the complete physical environment, much less the political environment we were operating in. Yeah, I mean, what you you guys did was put together this video package, which was, I think it was the first time, I think America really saw the extent of what that violence was. It was shocking to see that. And of course, you're right. The members were inside and didn't see it as it was happening. And neither did the American people, really. You had some sense of it. But that package, where where did you get all that footage from? You got it from different sources. Well, it was the most videotaped and recorded, um, well, certainly insurrection in history. We've only had one real violent insurrection against Congress. But I think it was the most videotaped and closely recorded political violence in our history because uh, the press was all over the place, but the participants in it were recording it and beaming it out on Facebook Live and on their websites and so on. So there were hundreds of thousands of images that our team went through. And then we had to condense that and try to tell as holistic and of, and as fine-grained a portrait as we could to uh, the country. What I found interesting in the book was that you, uh, I think, some Hollywood people reached out to you. To, uh, we want to, you know, we'll help you put the package together. And you, you said, no, you resisted that. You said, no. Yeah. Well, I, I knew that the moment that that leaked out, that Hollywood was there, that would, that would be all we would hear from the Republicans that, mm-hmm. you know, whoever it was, I'm just making up names, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, Michael Moore, whoever. Um, and these are not people who called me, but they would have said, this is just a made for TV movie. They're making it up. Um, and of course, the, the revisionist account of it began that night with Matt Gates saying, already the Washington Times has reported from facial recognition technology that this was really an Antifa attack, which was absurd. Yeah. But that, that was repeated 400,000 times within the next 24 hours. And, you know, to this day, Donald Trump says that his rioters uh, approached our police officers with hugs and kisses when 150 of them ended up with broken noses, jaws, necks, vertebrae, arms, legs, missing fingers, gouged eyes, traumatic brain injuries. But th- they have lied about it and tried to you know, do an Orwellian number on the whole events. Orwell's looking pretty good right now. That's sort of a basic problem right now, the big lie. It is very Orwellian. And uh, that's one of the major problems in our, our, our country right now. And it's very frightening. Yeah. Uh, when are the hearings going to start on the uh, January 6th Select Committee? Uh, you know, select our hope committee. had been in March, and we have had overwhelming cooperation from most of the witnesses, including those in domestic violent extremist groups and so on. But the closer you get to Trump uh, and his entourage, the the more roadblocks we find. So, you know, we've been trying to deal with Steve Bannon, who just blew us off and didn't uh, show up, uh, with Roger Stone, who invoked the Fifth Amendment uh, repeatedly and continuously. Uh, Mark Meadows, who was kind of doing the hokey pokey, uh, one foot in and one foot out, he started to cooperate. Then Trump blew up at him about his book, which (laughs) Trump had also blurbed, but I guess somebody read it. And so Trump insisted that Mark Meadows call his own book fake news. The the bottom line is uh, probably late April, early May, we will either get cooperation from all those people with the help of the courts if we need it, or we're going to have to just work around them. 
It, it, you know what seems odd to me uh, is how long it's taking to get, get like Bannon in the court because I, I don't know exactly how much uh, is at issue here. I mean, he was subpoenaed by you guys, and he isn't coming. Yeah. So what are the legal well, issues? Well, the Supreme Court has blown away the argument about executive privilege. In an eight-to-one decision, the court said, look, you've got the president of the United States, Joe Biden, and the Congress agreeing that there's no cause for invocation of uh, an executive privilege. There's nothing there. And to override the agreement between executive and the legislative branches would require some extremely compelling uh, invocation of executive privilege. And they said, not only did Trump not advance an extremely compelling interest, he didn't advance an interest at all. He just said, I don't want that coming out. I mean, it seems that Meadows is the chief of staff and maybe there's some some something there that he can say, well, this is kind of privileged or this isn't. But Bannon was not in the White House. And I don't understand why that can't be dispensed with yes. know, much, much quicker. And it bothers me, uh, frankly. Yeah. Well, Bannon had been fired, of course, three and a half years before. So even Donald Trump's discredited executive privilege could not theoretically apply to Bannon. He's just asserting an, you know, an alt-right insurrectionist privilege, basically. He doesn't recognize the authority of our government. So, But you know, what I want to tell you, Al, is I viewed the seditious activity of that day as taking place in kind of three rings. And one ring was this mass demonstration that turned into a mob riot mm-hmm. um, and ended up, you know, injuring and wounding 150 of our cops. A middle ring, the insurrectionist wing of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Aryan Nations. The, uh, seditious, what, what, what are they charged with, the Oath Keepers? Seditious conspiracy. That's going to be really hard to prove because you know what their oath is? I will do everything I can to overthrow the United States government. That's the Oath Keepers' <laughs> right. oath. So I don't right. I don't know how well, long it, that trial is going to take. To to make it a conspiracy, of course, you need the agreement. Plus, you need an overt act. But there were hundreds, I think, of overt acts. But certainly, you could find one uh, that would convict them of actually moving their conspiracy into reality. But of course, that was just one group. There were all these other groups. I mean, the Proud Boys had their own plans. These were kind of ringed conspiracies. They were interlocking networks of conspiracy and. The interesting thing um, is what links that middle group to the innermost ring, which was the ring of the coup. And that's a weird word in American political parlance because we don't have a lot of experience with coups. And we think of a coup as taking place against a president. But this was a coup organized by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. And so what was the connection between the coup plotters and the insurrectionists and the leaders of the mob violence? That's a lot of what we're bearing down on to try to figure out how the chaos of the day was organized. What was the method behind the madness? And I don't want you to tip anything, but um, how are you doing on that? Are you, are you getting there? Well, yeah. I mean, we if everybody were to testify, we'd be ready to go tomorrow with hearings and then write our report. But there are people who are... Um, you know, hiding under their <laughs> under their beds right now, including um, Steve Bannon. But again, this was an extremely well documented event in real time by people who were recording what was going on. I mean, you know, we saw Donald uh, Trump's tweets going out in the middle of the riot, attacking uh, Mike Pence, saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done, and then 
you get the mob storming the quarters looking for Mike Pence, yelling, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. With, with so, a noose out there, with a gallows, a makeshift gallows. Yes. Nobody had any doubt that day that they were serious. And like Lindsey Graham said, when it was all over, uh, all of us could have died. They could have had a bomb. The reason that these people did bring uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of weapons, uh, firearms to Washington. And of course, they were armed with baseball bats and Confederate battle flags and stuff like that. But the reason that most of them didn't have guns, although some did, but didn't have guns at the riot was because they had gone first to the Trump rally where the Secret Service was inspecting uh, people's bags and checking them. So in order to get into the Trump rally because of the Secret Service, they oh, left I their weapons know that. in the car. Yeah, they left their weapons in the car or the hotel or the motel. And if you look at the extreme right websites later on that night and the next days, they were basically saying their big mistake was not to keep their weapons with them. And if they'd had them, they would basically be running the government. Right so now. if Trump had said, instead of saying, Let, let's go to the Capitol now and you got to fight, he, he, if he had said, go to the Capitol, but before you do, go get get your guns. Because you had to, take, had the secret, right, right, <laughs> you yeah. had to take them out of your backpacks. That would have been pretty. Uh, that would have been a smoking gun, so to speak. I yeah, I I think that's right. And uh, a lot of them. I mean, of course, it is as as it is for Donald Trump a day of celebration for the insurrectionist groups. Uh, they went from a ragtag army of five hundred people at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August of two thousand seventeen to several thousand people who were the frontline stormtroopers, the vanguard of this rally, a riot of 40 or 50,000 people. And they almost knocked over the U.S. government. So everybody knows that Donald Trump used them, but they used him too. And long after we're done with Donald Trump, we're going to be dealing with this mass fascist street violence movement that he created by bringing these groups together. Yeah, and he basically encouraged violence. I mean, he said he'd uh, pay for your legal fees if you beat someone up at his rallies. I want to ask you about the three hours and whatever minutes it was between when this started and how long it took him to do anything in terms of saying go home. That feels dispositive to me. That feels like, okay, your duty as president is to put down an insurrection at the Capitol. That's unquestionable. Isn't that just proof? I mean, isn't it, how is that not proof? How does the jury hear that? The president had an opportunity for three hours plus to stop this damn thing, and he didn't. And by and I, I know you're you're getting testimony from like Ivanka from lots of different people who were there. He clearly chose not to do that as people were beseeching him to do it. And I guess eyewitnesses were that he was enjoying the thing, of course, of course. Yeah. How is that not just proof? How is that not proof? That's, well, isn't well, that it, proof? It is. <laughs> I mean. And we, we relied very heavily on that in the impeachment trial um, because you know, there were people saying, well, maybe, you know, we, this was just normal political rhetoric and it got out of hand. You know, you, you could plausibly argue that if at the moment he learned of the violence and the riot, he immediately tried to mobilize the National Guard, go on TV, tell people this has gotten out of hand, go home, go home. None of that took place. I mean, he could have walked 30 seconds over to the White House briefing room to get on TV and didn't do it. So for uh, you know, 187 minutes, 
nothing happened. And he was enjoying and delighting in the violence, according to a lot of people. So it wasn't just the strategic deployment of violence, which it definitely was uh, in order to break up the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in our history, but it was also his intrinsic sadistic delight that he took in seeing all of it happen. And uh, that is a story I think we will be able to tell. If you had a jury and the jury, you know, said he could have stopped this for three hours and seven minutes and he didn't. If I were in the jury, I'd go, well, he's guilty. I mean, his his intention was not to stop this thing and let it hopefully let it go on. And maybe they could find Pence and kill him. And I, 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 that to me is just a smoking gun. That is absolutely uh, proof uh, to me. And I, I guess what I'm asking is, is that a lot of people look at this stuff. Uh, for example, the Raffensperger tape. And I think that the prosecution of the Fulton County prosecutor is very promising. But you look at all of this and you go like, there's no question. How does a jury not go, yep, he was uh, lying about the election being stolen. That in itself is undercutting our democracy. And he is on tape <laughs> uh, demanding that the Secretary of State of Georgia find him 11,780 votes. Which, you know, I've, I've said this before on this podcast, but can you imagine what that press conference would have been like for Raffensperger? <clears throat> I'm Secretary Raffensperger, and we have a new total. Uh, President uh, Trump is the winner by one vote. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what was he? So Trump thought he'd do that. Oh, yeah, he'll do that. <laughs> so, okay, answer my question. How is this not already proven? I mean, it- he got the only jury of 100 people in the country that would not have convicted him 100 to zero or something like that, overwhelmingly. It was the most biased and contaminated jury you can imagine. But the, the case that we presented for conviction for incitement to violent insurrection was so overwhelming and so irrefutable and certainly unrefuted that you can't imagine any other reasonable people getting together and doing anything other than voting to convict. But you know, if you look look at what McConnell said afterwards, he said Donald Trump is singularly, factually, actually, ethically, morally responsible, but we have no jurisdiction to try a former president, which we had dispensed of the first day of the trial. We had rejected it. And I said, think of this like a suppression motion in a criminal prosecution. Somebody says the gun was illegally seized. If the defendant loses on that, it's gone. At that point, you just look at the facts of the trial. But he went back to the legal issue that we had already resolved. Well, you resolved it by they're not getting enough votes to win uh, on that argument. So obviously, an impeachment is a different kind of trial. Yeah, but that was jury nullification. I mean, they basically said, we're going to ignore the facts of what happened, and instead we're going to go back to a legal argument that we've already lost. And I understand that the senators are operating like judges and jurors at that point. But look, they made their bed. They're going to have to line it. I mean, I told any Republican who came to see me that you got to do this for the Constitution, you got to do it for America, but you got to do it for your party, too. Because the party of Abraham Lincoln is now the party of Donald Trump, and he will destroy it before it's all over. And and I really believe that. Yeah, and uh, this is why all the voting rights stuff and all the administrative law stuff and all of that is so important because the worry is, of course, they'll just do what he wanted 
to do this time next time. They're getting rid of everybody who got in the way. They're getting rid of Raffensperger. They're running one of my colleagues against uh, Raffensperger. I think it's Buddy Carter who's running against him. And they're targeting anybody who did not do the will of Donald Trump. Are you as worried as I am and everyone you know who's thinking about this should be that by not uh, being able to pass uh, the John Lewis bill and the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, that they may steal this thing. Yeah. Look, the the GOP is a minority party, a shrinking minority party. Hillary beat them by 3 million votes. Biden beat them by 7.5 million votes. The young people are coming our way. The new Americans are coming our way. So they understand that demography is against them. They thrive on the most anti-democratic instruments left in our political constellation, the gerrymandering of congressional districts, the manipulation of the filibuster to prevent voting rights statutes that would block the gerrymandering and block voter suppression, which they also use, the packing of the courts um, and right-wing judicial activism. And that's what they operate on now. And the the Electoral College, uh, which Maryland was the first to adopt the... um, a national popular vote interstate compact, right? You're the first state. Yeah, that was my first bill. That was right? your first bill. You know, I've been yeah. an advocate of that thing. And right now we have uh, 15 states in D.C. And we've made great progress. But of course, like everything else, it's it's mired in the partisan mud because the Trump who had been attacking the Electoral College and said it made us the laughingstock of the world suddenly found uh, the just the miracle virtues of the Electoral College in the 2016 Well, it's because the only way they can win. So that's how yeah. a minority party wins is through the Electoral College because, well, we see, we've see we seen that. We saw that in 16, obviously, and we saw that in 2000. So Twice in this uh, century already. Yep, you know. yep. Let me ask you, let me go back to this. How are you doing? Now, you had this trauma, and I think the work that you're doing is is incredibly helpful that you are, are doing something incredibly important and purposeful are you are how are you doing and are you concerned that maybe after this really intense period that you you're how you're going to process this all and how the rest of your you're going to deal with this the rest of your your life yeah well there's a lot of love out there. We've we've been mm-hmm. surrounded by just a lot of good people. And, you know, we have our family and we have our friends. And I've got my constituents who've been wonderful. And, and people love Tommy. Yeah. You know, he raised money for, like, a lot of money for causes that he cares about. Yes. Human rights and animal rights and welfare. And, you know, the, the farewell note he left us said, please forgive me my illness one today look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me, all my love, Tommy. And so that's like an instruction manual for us on how to live. And um, I don't know, it's like a day-to-day thing. Yep. I mean, I, I every day I see everything differently. The book that I wrote in those sleepless, you know, months right after we lost Tommy and after the insurrection and impeachment trial is a different book than I would uh, write today, probably. But I, I did record that moment in time and what my thoughts and what my feelings were. And um, I definitely feel 
as resolved or more resolved to fight to defend our democratic institutions because Tommy was looking for a lot more from democracy, not a lot less from it. And the dangers all over the world and the dangers in our country are so real. Well, now that I think of it, the work isn't going to end ever. So there's that. This is a, this is a long fight. Uh, yes, it is. So, um, you know, we, we, we're going to have to build as much culture and as much music and um, as much uh, mirth and merriment into it as possible because it's, it's serious work, but we are on the side of humanity. And so we want to keep our humanity as full and as te- textured as possible. Yeah. And Tommy was very funny from what you write. And uh, he was very funny. Every day I think about new stuff I wish I had put remembered in the book. <laughs> and put in the book. We used to have fights, you know, about free will and determinism. And I always took a, a free will position and he always took a determinism <laughs> position. And he would end up by saying, I freely choose to believe that everything is determined. And then I would say, well, I guess it's just determined in my case that I will believe in free will. And we would have to leave it at that. But I I think a lot of that had to do with his not always feeling in control of his feelings and his perceptions of things. I mean, he he could really be overwhelmed by the the darkness of depression. Yeah, well, I think that uh, because of the, pandemic and 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 trump uh there's just been a real increase in in mental health issues in our country it is connected because um you know if we're going to move into an authoritarian society or dictatorship the mental health of the population is irrelevant or in fact you know the leaders want people uh to be either depressed or deranged and certainly donald trump has activated every unstable person in the country and depress the hell out of millions more people. But if we're going to have a real strong democracy, we need everybody operating at their best. And so that's why healthcare, both physical healthcare and mental and emotional healthcare, is a matter of pressing concern for us. Yeah, I was on the health committee and... Uh, you did so much on that. Well, I did a lot on, on mental health in schools, and uh, we, we have a long way to go, obviously. And and it's also tough. It's 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 tougher to treat mental illness in many ways than something that you, you know, a physical thing that you know exactly how to treat and that we've discovered how to treat. Yeah. Um, so you s- taught at, at American University, right? You were a law. Yeah, law yeah. Professor. I was a professor of constitutional law for a quarter century. And, and then ran for the st- state senate at first? Yes. Yeah, and won that, and that again, that was you. You kind of paint Tommy at eight, I think, <laughs> kind yeah. of uh, being your campaign manager and writing speeches, <laughs> writing speeches and jokes and stuff like that. He loved yeah. that part of it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and this is your third term, is it that you're in? Now? I'm in my third term in the U.S. House. Yeah, yeah, and when when I was a state senator, I was still. A law professor, and uh, you know, I've always thought of myself as basically a teacher. I love writing, I I love uh, reading, and I love engaging with students. Um, you know, but then one day, Chris Van Hollen called me up and he said, "Senator Mikulski's stepping down. I'm going to run for Senate. Will you endorse me?" And I said, "Chris, not only will I endorse you, I'll run for your seat." And that was pretty much my whole <laughs> my whole deliberative decision making process. There, I knew I wanted to do it right away. A lot of the stuff I campaigned on at the state level, like abolishing the death penalty and marriage equality and 
decriminalization of marijuana. And we had gotten all that stuff done. And, you know, I'm not somebody who just wants to be in the office for the sake of being in office. I wanted to get stuff done. And then everything got so weird when the same night I won, Donald Trump won. And uh, I've been so consumed with my own campaign. I hadn't really focused on the possibility that that might happen. We're going to take a quick break right now. We're talking with Jamie Raskin. We'll be right back. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with Congressman Jamie Raskin. We've talked a little bit about where this is going, where this whole thing is going. Well, let's talk about timeline specifically because we obviously have some markers to hit. There's the, of course, midterms. When do you want to get this stuff done for the select committee? Well, you know, my hope was something like March hearings and April or May report. It looks like it may be more like April, May hearings and uh, a report that comes later in the summer. But the, the point of this report is to tell a compelling and riveting story to the public about what just happened to us and how much danger we were really in. I mean, you could twist the dial and imagine things going differently with about a dozen different factors. I mean, obviously, if Mike Pence had caved in to Donald Trump the way he basically had for four years before, we'd be in a very different situation because they knew they had 27 state delegations that they could get it into the contingent election. You know, the Democrats, we only had 22. 22 state uh, delegations in the House, because uh, let me let me ask you about the contingent election, because you write that in the book, that that's what their plan was. They said their plan was to go back to those states. At least that's what I, I kind of heard the senator saying was to go back to those states and find out who won, you know, who actually and, and, won. And so that's a decoy, of course, because the governors had already presented the certificates of ascertainment stating who had won. So they were saying, well, no. We're going to override that. We're going to reject that, send it back to the legislatures to ask them who really won. And we'll, in some of the states, have these counterfeit electoral college slates that have just been manufactured. But the thing is, there's no provision for that in the Constitution, and there's no provision for that in the Electoral Count Act. But what the 12th Amendment says is that if no one has a majority of electors at the point when we open the electors, at that point, under the 12th Amendment, the House of Representatives must meet immediately, that's in the Constitution, mm-hmm. must meet immediately to elect the president by state, electing it by state. And even with the defection of the at-large representative from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, which right. they still had 26 states. Right. So they would have run it like the Republican convention. 
They would have declared him the president. He would have seized the presidency. And at that point, I think he was prepared to invoke the Insurrection Act and to declare something like martial law to call in the National Guard to put down the insurrectionary chaos he had unleashed against us. And he would have blamed Nancy Pelosi, saying she can't even run it around here, but I'm going to do that. And I'm the president again. And that's where it, it undoubtedly would have gone had Mike Pence cooperated with them. But there are other things that could have happened, you know, even without Pence's cooperation. So, you know, we have to be very grateful for the heroic police officers who defended us because it, they, look, bought, they bought the time. Yeah. If they had killed 10 Democratic members, really six Democratic members, they would have been able to validate their objections that under the Constitution, we have to keep meeting, which is true. If the Democrats aren't there to vote for it because they've been assassinated, well, so be it. But they would have been able to uphold those objections. So there are a lot of things that could have happened that would have changed the outcome and could have led to, you know, not just a successful coup and insurrection, but also civil war. It's interesting where Milley was in all this, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, because yeah. it's come out in a couple books that he was very, he was very concerned about Trump's mental state and uh, the possibility that, you know, as far as going to ordering a nuclear strike and uh, his calling his counterpart in China and saying, like, if we attack, if we didn't mean it or something like that, uh, it, it could have gotten really wooly. Yes. Uh, you write something in this uh, where you said that you thought, and, and uh, I think you say in the documentary, too, uh, that you thought that the Capitol Police would, would shoot uh, the rioters. Um, if you'd asked me before January 6th, could anybody run past the guards to get to the House floor, the Senate floor without being apprehended? I, I would have said, no, they would shoot them. They would shoot them down because you've got to go through metal detectors security clearance, metal detectors to get in. The idea that hundreds of people could enter the Capitol without getting through security is just unfathomable to me. And when Tabitha and Hank, my son-in-law, asked when I, they were trying to get me not to go, but when I told them I had to go, it was a constitutional requirement, and I invited them to come, they said, will we be safe? And I said, yeah. And the very, very clear image I had in my mind was of a Black Lives Matter protest on June 2nd. Uh, 2020, when um, there was a phalanx of National Guardsmen and women armed on the steps. And I just had this image in my mind because we had, of course, a lot more time to get ready for January 6th. And Black Lives Matter showed up because the day before, of course, Trump and Bill Barr had unleashed a paramilitary police riot against protesters in, in Lafayette, Lafayette yeah. Square. So Trump was willing to use violent government violence against protesters. He's also willing to use protester violence against the government, you know, whatever would advance his movement and his political agenda. What would have happened if they had shot those people? They obviously chose not to do that for a reason, yes. right? Well, here's the thing. One protester, uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was about to right. enter the floor of the House of Representatives, she was shot, and that's why the House was not stormed and occupied the way that the Senate floor was uh, by the insurrectionists. But on the other hand, if you talk to Officer Dunn or Officer Hodges or any of these cops, they will tell you that when they're looking out at this sea of people, 
they knew that a lot of people were armed and the and the bloodshed would have just been unbelievable. I mean, a lot of cops would have been killed. A lot of people would have been killed had it gone down that road. And, um, you know, there were contingency plans that a number of the insurrectionist groups had made, like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters, to have these caches of weapons. I mean, Stuart Rhodes and, you know, his team were, were charged of buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of weapons that were in the cars and in their hotel rooms and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, you know, and look, what was going through our minds on the floor and, you know, my colleague Susan Wilde had a panic attack. People were calling their spouses, uh, their children, their parents to say goodbye for what they thought would be their last call. What was going through their mind was tree of life, synagogue, pulse nightclub, Mm-hmm. You know, Walmart in Texas, people imagine one of these people is going to pull out an AR-15 and it's all over for us. And in fact, our colleagues who were caught up in the gallery, and it was only Democrats up there because we respected the rule that we were supposed to have three seats between us on on the floor. The Republicans didn't. They were all packed in next to each other, which is why none of them were up in the gallery. But the Democrats were in the gallery. But when the in the storming the Capitol happened, they decided to try to get over to the Republican side because they thought it would be less likely that they would be shot if someone did show up with an AR-15 if they were on the Republican side of the House. So it was pretty, pretty hairy, pretty frightening. Everybody, I think a lot of people were thinking the same thing, which is if they've gotten in without the metal detectors, somebody's going to have a gun. And they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And where's Nancy? They were, you know, lots of them were talking about assassinating Pelosi. But there's also, you can find um, email traffic uh, among different extremists saying, get them all into the basement and turn on the gas, you know, and who knows whether they were speaking metaphorically or not. But the cops were calling the west front of the Capitol and that doorway um, where Officer Hodges got caught, they were calling that the uh, gas chamber because of just this witch's brew of tear gas, bear mace, just chemical, like unknown chemical substances that the insurrectionists had brought. And even for a few days after, nobody wanted to go near there because it was just putrid. Man. Well, uh, so you, you think we came much closer than... A lot of people people know and people understand. I I really do. Uh, Congressman Schiff was on on with me, and he said that uh, one of the Republicans, I I think, said, "Come with us, be on our side." Don't you know? And then he just kind of realized you guys made this happen. Well, there were we had colleagues, Gene Phillips, who's from your state. Yep, um, started yelling. You know. I'm forgetting verbatim what it was, but it was something to the effect of this is what you wanted. You created this. Uh, A number of members, there could have been fisticuffs. What was interesting was in the days after, um, a number of representatives, including uh, Andy Harris from Maryland, who's a pro-insurrectionist from the Eastern Shore uh, District, the first district of Maryland, he said he wanted to bring weapons to the floor. And people started bringing guns to the floor. And that's why uh, Speaker Pelosi instituted metal detectors right outside the doors. You have to go through those to make sure you're not 
bearing arms on the floor of the house, but they were saying that they didn't feel safe uh, and they needed guns to protect themselves. And a lot of the Democrats were saying, if you had had guns on January 6th, you would not have used them against the insurrectionists. You would have used them against us, you know, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and these people. I, I've got no doubt that's true. If they had to shoot somebody, it would not have been the insurrectionists who they continue to lionize to this day and describe the ones who are in jail for smashing our police officers in the face or breaking the windows. They call them political prisoners. Did they respond to that accusation? You know, if you had guns, you'd, you would have been shooting us. Did they go like, hmm, yeah, you know, you might be right. I mean, they don't, they don't admit well, it. Well, I mean, they, they scoff at the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I mean, they're, they're in full-blown revisionism about, about the whole thing. Well, let's talk about Republicans and Democrats, because to me, it's scary that the Republican Party has become. And you serve with literal nuts, I think. Um, some of the people that you just referred to, I, I, I assume you don't talk to them. Well, I mean, I talk to everybody. I'm a middle child, so I'm used to trying to bring people together. And I, I always prided myself on being a very bipartisan guy. Um, and I got to say, I mean, Liz Cheney is one of my best friends in Congress right now. I mean, I love working with the Republicans who have, you know, kept their thinking caps on. Yeah, but that's 180 degrees from the people we were just talking about. Yeah. But yeah, for those people, it's gotten, I got to admit, it's gotten a lot tougher. I mean, I can't see going up to Jim Jordan going, hey, hey Jim, have a great weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been, it's been a tough time for me. I mean, when I was in the Maryland Senate, if somebody... You know, if someone lost a family member, everybody, Democrats and Republicans, would write them a note or come console them or, you know, and despite what Matt Gates said on the floor that night, because he, he invokes my family's grief and he invokes the loss of Tommy, but I mean, I never got a note from him. I never heard from him. And, you know, he used that to prove they were wishing upon the Republic no ill will. Uh, and then he proceeded to, you know, fabricate the thing about Antifa. Th that left me really angry, I got to say. There is, a, there is a thing in the documentary where all your colleagues, uh, Republican and Democrat, do applaud, have sympathy. And you say something about the feeling you got from that saying, maybe this will work out and maybe, and yeah, uh, yeah boy, it, it, it didn't, but actually at that moment, you kind of went like, maybe you felt their love. You said, yeah, I thought, you know, I just thanked them for the sympathy that I had received. And then there, there was like, you know, the, this huge ovation. And I thought to myself, uh, totally, you know, hope over experience, but I thought to myself, you know, maybe the catastrophe of Tommy's loss will mean that this won't be bloodshed tonight. Um, and of course, there were much larger forces in play, but I, I just resented the idea that anybody would invoke what we were going through to demonstrate that they were, you know, not participating in this assault against the election.
and this assault against our democracy. So I was upset with what Matt Gates said, and I wrote about it in the book. I just I thought it was wrong. This Orwellian whitewashing, you know, on the night that we'd experienced it all. I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on the Republican Party now and sort of the future. Because I, it's as you're, you're right, people are depressed about this. Yeah, it's depressing. But I mean, this is why, um, you know, we've got to put the spotlight on the people who are heroes. I mean, Liz Cheney's just being tough as hell. She's not letting anybody get away with anything. Uh, same with Adam Kinzinger. I mean, these are people who have a real moral compass. And, you know, obviously we don't agree on a lot of stuff, but they're constitutional patriots. Yeah, but they're the exceptions and they're paying a price. You know, Kinzinger isn't running for re-election. A number of the ones who voted for impeachment are just not running. Uh, yeah. Cheney is, you know, being primaried. And uh, I, yeah. I don't know what the polling is on that, but I know Wyoming and it's all Republican, but I would imagine pretty right wing. Yeah. The, the Republican Party. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, if, if Liz can pull it out. And it'll be interesting to see what she does with her career, because I, I've not spoken to her about it, but she's somebody who Donald Trump is afraid of. I would love to see Liz Cheney run against Donald Trump uh, for president um, in the Republican Party. But it, it's a disturbing thing. What's happened to me, it's been a painful lesson in the frailty of the human mind that so many people could basically turn over their political decision-making and rationality to Donald Trump because, you know, 2020 was a remarkable year for a lot of reasons. And one of them was that it was the first time in uh, American political history that I could find anyway, when a major political party did not adopt a platform and they had their convention in 2020 and they said, you know what, uh, we're not going to do it. So what's their platform? Whatever Donald Trump tells them it is on any particular issue. And, and you know, Donald Trump had a, had a chance to tell them what it was. I mean, it was his convention, but he doesn't have anything. There's nothing he, he, he didn't even get infrastructure done during his four years. And, and everyone wants infrastructure. How he couldn't get that done, especially in the first uh, two years, it's amazing. So their platform is whatever he says, and their agenda is just voter suppression. That's what it seems like now. And uh, it's, this is all just very disturbing. Their dogma is the big lie. I mean, we have 61 federal and state courts that have rejected every allegation of electoral fraud and corruption. And, you know, I've tried to keep track of just even these episodic cases of voter fraud. Um, you know, there's a couple dozen of them. They're almost overwhelmingly Republicans. Uh, one guy murdered his wife and then cast Colorado, her vote, right? Saying, <laughs> yeah. And then said he knew how she wanted to vote. I mean, Okay, so there are a handful of cases of voter fraud, mostly on their side. How do you get from that to saying that Donald Trump actually won the election? Well, you know, this is this is uh, their game plan is it doesn't matter whether they actually win or not. And and speaking of these uh, cases, these 60 some cases, uh, Giuliani and uh, Powell at all have been subpoenaed by you guys. You would think, because what I hear from them is like, oh, none of these were actually, uh, these cases were actually decided on the merits. It was all procedural. And so I would think that, well, great. Now you're subpoenaed. You finally have a chance to present the evidence. Look, uh, William Barr um, 
kind of came to his senses uh, such as they are at the end. And he told Donald Trump, he said, it's all bullshit. I mean, there's no better way to sum it up than that. Is that, uh, did he testify? Did he say that he said that? Or is this, are you paraphrasing? It, he's on record. <laughs> and this is before our committee that he said to Trump, all of these arguments you're making are bullshit. And that's it. And everybody knows it. So, you know, why does a whole political party have to wrap itself around that? Well, I, it has something to do with the nature of a charismatic leader or something. It has, <laughs> there's something. Well, what's funny <laughs> is, you know, everybody deplores partisanship. I mean, Trump's not a particularly partisan guy. I mean, he was a Democrat. He was a Republican. He wanted to run for president on the Reform Party. I mean, it's much more like a religious cult of personality. It's like they've been pulled into the hypnotic effects of his stupid rhetoric. And, you know, obviously there's... Uh, a lot of pain in the country that Donald Trump somehow tapped into um, in different places. And there are a lot of people who feel displaced by the new America we're in. And that's what our party has got to deal with. We've got to do a lot better at understanding the people who, you know, might not have all of the right language protocols down, but have been left behind by government and need government to be a force for good in their lives. So I feel proud of what we did on infrastructure. I hope we can salvage something from Build Back Better. We can do universal pre-K for the mm -hmm. three-year-olds and four-year-olds. We can you know, continue the child care tax credit. We can deal with prescription drugs. I mean, that's another one where Trump at certain points had good rhetoric. I mean, and but it's very simple. Give the government and Medicare the power to negotiate with Big Pharma yeah, for but, lower drug but prices. But Big Pharma doesn't want we, that, and yeah. that's really who the Republican Party is. They don't want that. They don't want it, but the American people do. And so my feeling is right now, instead of putting out Build Back Better as a one reconciliation package, which they haven't seemed to be able to do for some reason, um, which I, I, and I don't understand why they couldn't get Manchin to say, okay, this is what I'll agree to. Uh, but why not put those things out? Everything you just mentioned is wildly popular. And right. all we've heard is horse race for the last, you know, six months about Build Back Better. Is it, you know, 3.5 trillion, uh, 1.5, 1.75, Manchin, yeah. Cinema, Manchin, Manchin. But no, if you put these out one by one, people need to have their childcare subsidized so they can go to work. It would be the best thing to help people work, you know. And universal pre-K, it may, early childhood education is such a win-win. The return on investment is so high. Yeah, and of course that means also you can work when your kid's three or four years old. Instead of you know, uh, not be able to afford childcare, it's all of this stuff is incredibly popular, and if you just put right. it out one by one, and okay, make Republicans vote against them, fine. But then you put it in a reconciliation package, and people will see what's in it, and you just put the things that everybody likes, and then you put that in the package, and you you pass it. Well, but I think we might be headed there. And you're right, but we just live in an age of intense propaganda so that, you know, they, they twist everything. But yeah, that's our job, and we should be doing a much better job of educating the public about what we're trying to do. Well, I, ju I just think the media tends to 
focused on inside baseball and horse race. And yeah. you can't stop them from doing that. But the way to stop them from doing that is to put these things on the floor and have the American people see what they are and have them go, oh, that's what this thing is. I see, <laughs> you know, and right, right. I like that and I like yeah. that and I like that. I hope they pass this. And then Mansion and Cinema will pass it and we'll do it with 50. We don't need them. You know, we need to get Mansion and Cinema to agree to whatever the package is. And after they see the American people going like, yes, please, 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 please do this. I think that we can get them aboard. That's right. Well, that's, that's my um, theory. I, I mean, I don't think it's over yet. I really don't. Um, but I think that's how and, to get it. I think that's how to do it. Yeah. You know? No, and, and I, I think that. I think that there's the will to try again, and I think you've sketched out the right pathway. Of course they're going to try again, and of course they should try again right away, <laughs> and, and they should do what I'm uh, – some version of what I'm saying, unless they have some other version, but it certainly hasn't been working. I don't know uh, – you know, I know Joe. I don't get what, what – he feels like he's rope-a-doping, doesn't he? Well, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I, in other words, I hope that there's an end game for him where he says, look, here's the core of what I really do want. And uh, I've had to you know, put up a fight to show my people that you know, I don't want to spend as much money as everybody else, but here's what I do want. Um, but you know him better than I do. I just got to know him a little bit during the impeachment trial. But I, you know, I think he's enough of, uh, enough of a Democrat that he will help us you know, pull victory from the jaws of defeat here. Some of the stuff he is definitely for. He's for universal yeah. pre. I mean, we can put a package together of really good stuff that the American people like and pass it. And everyone will go like, oh, that was really good. That's really yeah. good. I wish we could have done it in October and have some of the stuff, you know, benefiting people, you know, so they could see the benefits before uh, the, the election. But, you know, better that we do exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's my message and and the house will uh will work with them to do pass whatever they pass right um uh, yeah we have to i mean it's frustrating to people and i, I think that's why some of our colleagues uh, ditched us on infrastructure uh because they foresaw something like this happening but look if you want a more progressive congress you got to go elect a more progressive congress you can't just will it into being you know and there are some districts that you're not going to necessarily get someone as progressive as you. Uh, yeah, almost by definition. I mean, I think <laughs> we can. <laughs> um, you know, thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for the magnificent work you did uh, in the impeachment. I didn't ask you about some of the awful stuff that the Trump lawyers did, but <laughs> how bad they were. <laughs> but, That'll take a whole other show. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, uh, and thank you, Jamie, for uh, taking so much time with me and uh, uh, keep up the great work. Keep up your great work. Thank you, Alan. Uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. 
Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.